All right, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and get started. So if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, we will once again be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 this week. And unfortunately, we're not going to make much progress in the section, but we are going to drill down on a couple of these terms that Paul uses because they are particularly relevant to our culture. It's particularly uh, these commands that we're going to look at tonight are things that we in the West tend to not like so much about the New Testament. So I'm going to read uh, the section just beginning from verse 8 and following, uh, but we're going to be looking specifically at the beginning of verse 10. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 reads, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, and for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Pause there. This section we've been looking at is obviously one, one unit, one sentence, one thought, but we've been slowing down to go through it uh, because there's particular things that we struggle with in the West uh, regarding the law of God. Namely, we struggle to love God's law. Uh, and the big focus that we're going to be tackling tonight, and I introduced a little bit last time we talked about 1 Timothy, uh, is that God's law is something that is for the church today to edify us, to build us up, and that as a, res- as a result of that, we ought to learn how to love God's law. We see this in the Psalms, Psalm 119, Psalm 19, and Psalm 1 all advocate the law of God as an edification for the church, something that builds us up, something that is good for us, good for our people. And there are particular ways in which that might be good in theory. And then you get into the practical side of the law. You get down to what the law requires. And then we bump into things like what we're going to look at tonight, uh, where the law prohibits any kind of sexual activity or sexual desire that goes outside of the bounds of marriage. So you see this uh, in verse 10, where Paul, in his list of things that are describing the disobedient and the lawless, uh, he describes those who practice uh, sexual immorality and men who practice homosexuality. He uses two terms to encapsulate uh, the one commandment that uh, says, you shall not commit adultery. That's in Exodus chapter 20. And Paul has been enumerating the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 thus far. And here he comes to uh, commandment number six, you shall not commit adultery. And he uses two terms to describe what that prohibition looks like. Uh, First, he prohibits any kind of sexual immorality. And then, as though not to be misunderstood, he also prohibits homosexuality. And that is uh, particularly strange for us in, in the Christian church today because we have so many people who are asking the question, why is the Christian sexual ethic? the way that it is? Why, why do we believe what we believe about homosexuality? And, and why do we insist so narrowly on, on certain definitions of sexual activity? Why is, why is that what the Christian church demands? Uh, some would go so far as to say that it seems rather outdated, rather archaic. And I fear, honestly, that some Christians, particularly Christians in the West, uh, struggle not with having the right answer, but struggle to show their work as to why it's a good answer. We struggle to actually explain why it's lovely that God God has demanded this of his people. It's a little bit like if you were uh, ever a student in a math class and your teacher said something like, show your work on a problem. You know, you'd have multiple choice tests and 
what you, what you might be tempted to do if you don't know how to do the test is you guess and you get the test back, you get the answer correct, but you can't explain how you got that answer correct or not. It's kind of what most people in the church's uh, position is on homosexuality. We know what the right answer is, somehow we've come across it, uh, but we couldn't explain it or justify it or get you to how we got to that right answer. Uh, at best, we feel like it was a guess and that everyone landed on. But I, I think that there is a reason why God prohibits these things. I think it is lovely and good that he is promoting something good for humanity when he prohibits uh, these other kinds of sexual activity. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to have to talk about tonight. So we're going to get just a, a wee bit technical and then we'll go a little bit more expansive. But uh, here's, let's say, a primary thing we're going to be looking at. Uh, because God's law is good, because it is uh, good, or sorry, because God is good, God's law is good. And because God's law is good, God's sexual ethic, which is within his law, is more lovely than whatever the world has to offer outside of that. Okay? And we're going to look at that in a couple of ways. First, we're going to see that God's law edifies his people. Then that God's law protects his people. And finally, that as a result of those two things, God's law is beautiful to his people. So God's law, first and foremost, edifies his people. And we'll see this by, let's say, what is the law prohibiting and promoting? Okay? So in, in verse 10, the term sexually moral, you've probably heard that term described before in the original Greek, the, the, the language is used porneia. It, it describes any kind of sexual activity that is outside of the boundary of, of marriage. So he says sexual immorality is a description of someone who is a lawbreaker, someone who's not righteous, someone who the law is good for, right? So sexual immorality is prohibited by Paul and, and that includes anything that goes outside of the boundaries of marriage. That would be things like um, sex before marriage, sex within marriage with someone who's not your spouse, uh, any kind of sexual activity that would be uh, uh, self-stimulation or virtual stimulation or whatever else would be conjured up by the culture. Basically anything that doesn't fit this narrow definition of one man, one woman in a marital relationship faithfully committed for a lifetime qualifies as sexual immorality. And so that is helpful to us because uh, we think in the, in the West that we're inventors of all kinds of interesting novelties and that humanity for thousands of years had it backwards and wrong and, and we figured out ways in which the human body can be uh, more fully enjoyed, that pleasure can be more fully experienced, and that's a good thing for society. Uh, but as we find out often and as studies often show, these new inventions of the West aren't all that new, one by historical accounts, and often aren't all that good for society either. It's actually God's law and his design for sex, which is most uh, most designed for human flourishing. It most builds up and edifies. And we'll look a little bit more narrowly at that. But the second term is one that I want to drill in a little bit on, at least in a technical sense. In verse 10, Paul sa says not only sexual immorality, but uh, depending on what translation you have, this might get rendered differently. In the ESV, it says men who practice homosexuality. Uh, some translations would render it just as homosexuals. And there's a debate about what is Paul prohibiting here. The term in the original language is a term that is a hybrid concoction that Paul basically invents, and that leaves scholars to debate about where is he drawing it from and what does he mean by that. Um, the, the term is probably most faithfully translated as men who lie with men, and so that leads some translations to translate it as he, what Paul is prohibiting here is the activity, just the activity, but not really with any intent towards desire or affection or orientation. Uh, and then some would say, no, 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 he's, he's prohibiting all of it. Just the activity and the desire for the activity, kind of all of the above, he's prohibiting. And so we have to ask the question, 
what is good, lovely, and right if Paul is prohibiting these things. And so the first thing to note would be that with regards to sexual morality and homosexuality, these two things both explain one original prohibition in the Ten Commandments, namely, you shall not commit adultery. So Paul uses two terms. Now the question is, why does Paul use two terms to explain one term? And I think it's because of his culture that he uses two terms to explain one term. So if you were to talk to a Jewish person in a Jewish context, it would be enough for you to say, do not commit adultery, because a Jewish person knows that adultery is anything outside of the bounds of marriage, and that marriage is defined as one man and one woman. Okay? A Jewish person knows both of those truths. So if you're going to say to a Jewish person who's, who Moses gives the Ten Commandments to, don't commit adultery, they know exactly what you mean by that. If you're Paul, and you're writing to a mixed congregation in Ephesus, who's going to be both made up of Jews and Greeks, now you're going to have a little bit of a problem on your hands, namely that there's a cultural gap, which is to say that Paul has to not only explain that any activity outside of marriage is wrong, but he also has to define more narrowly what is considered a faithful marital covenant relationship. So he's both prohibiting any sexual activity outside of any kind of faithful covenant commitment relationship. That would be sexual immorality. And then he narrowly defines what he means by marriage, that covenantal relationship, by prohibiting homosexuality, meaning any, any kind of assertion that what Paul has in mind here is some kind of sexual abuse, not with regards to a marriage relationship, would, would honestly have been summed up in the first term pretty nicely, because that would qualify as sexual immorality. But what Paul is doing here, I think, is he is, he, is, he is using two terms to explain very narrowly what he's talking about. Sexual immorality, and then narrowly defining what is sexual fidelity. Okay? So that's helpful for us, because in our culture, people make arguments like, well, Paul wasn't aware of the concept of a faithful, committed sexual relationship between two men or between two women. That that was something beyond Paul's, Paul's day, he had no concept of it. We know that that's not true. People hundreds of years before Paul were writing about such things in their erotic romance novels and things like that. They, were, they would talk about these sexual relationships between two men or between two women. They had a concept of a committed sexual relationship between these two. And so Paul is, is aware of that context in his, in his own day. Also, uh, it's worth noting that Paul in his day is addressing people who are doing all kinds of sexual perversions, not just uh, things that we could imagine today, but uh, as we see in uh, Corinth, uh, people in the church are thinking it's okay to sleep with cult prostitutes, and as long as they don't lust in their heart, then it's okay. Paul has to set them straight on that. So Paul is aware of all kinds of sexual perversion. He's aware of all of it. And in that, he summarizes the, these two terms, I think, very nicely to narrowly define what is sexually good, what is, what is promoted. And this is, as I'm going to argue, for the edification of God's people. Now, why is it for the edification of God's people? Well, many people have observed a lot of different things about uh, sexual immorality. But one of the things that's consistently observed by Christian scholars is that when you look at the the culture at large, and then you look at how Christians ought to behave in the culture, uh, purity, and in this case we're talking about sexual purity, purity is always considered a wise thing to do, and impurity is always considered a foolish thing to do. This is uh, by a guy named Randy Alcorn. He writes this book called The Purity Principle, and in this book he argues that it is always the case that purity, as defined by God, is wise, and it is always the case that impurity is always defined as foolish. Scripture kind of has this constant view of sexual activity. Purity is good, impurity is foolish, or as he says, it, it is stupid. And he says this, we will not consistently choose God's way until we first come to understand that his way is always best for us. 
this is where we get into the most trouble, I think, in the Western church, is we question whether or not God's way is the best way. We question whether or not God's way is really the most beneficial for humans, whether it is going to lead to the most flourishing. Surely, surely it could not be the case that so many in our culture have it wrong and only God has it right. But Paul says in Romans, uh, let God be found true and everyone else a liar. So we know that God's way is the best way, and now we have to understand how it is the best way. So how is it that sexual purity is edifying for the church? Well, there's a bunch of ways in which we can speculate or scheme, but I, I think just a couple of ways on the ground before we move to how it protects us. Sexual purity, as defined as a marital covenantal faithfulness, uh, is going to lead to the most good across a broad society and in a narrow group because you have covenantal faithfulness prioritized over personal pleasure. You have long-term faithfulness between two people in a committed relationship prioritized over self-interest and self-care. And in those things, you have the benefit of someone else put before the benefit of yourself. Now, this is a constant thing in scripture, which is to love thy neighbor. Uh, You are to consider what good you can do for another over what you can get out of something yourself. And here Paul promotes this by saying that actually sexual fidelity is one of the ways in which you prioritize love of neighbor over love of self. This is the covenantal bond between a man and a woman that we see in in Paul's writing in Ephesus. He says, actually, the way that a husband loves a wife is by self-sacrificial love, dying to self and serving her. And the way a wife loves a husband is by submitting to that leadership. Both give themselves over toward one another. This is how sexual flourishing happens in the church. And we understand this uh, in the church. This is often repeated teaching. Uh, but also, uh, there's, there's probably one more piece that is worth understanding with this, which is God's law edifies his people not only by prohibiting certain activities, but also by prohibiting certain heart desires. This is important for us to understand. When we look at sexual immorality, the first thing in verse 10 that Paul prohibits, we understand often that Paul is not just saying you can't do any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. He's also saying you shouldn't desire those kinds of things either. It would be strange for us to say a person could live a perfectly healthy Christian walk, married, let's say, faithfully to their wife, while always desiring to be outside of that relationship and sleeping with other people. We would say, well, it's not in that case just their activity which needs to be right. It's also their heart which needs to be right. Both of those things need to come in line in order for them to be, let's say, living in holiness, living in flourishing. It would, be, it would be strange for us to say that, no, 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 somehow you could have your heart over here and your actions over here and, and somehow be living a complete whole life, right? We understand that. But I think so is the case with homosexuality, which is prohibited here. It's not just that Paul is prohibiting the activity. He's also prohibiting the desire for the activity. He's prohibiting both things. And, and as, just as in sexual immorality, it's not right for you to desire something, it's, it's not right for you to act on it. It's also not, not right for you to desire it. So too it is with homosexuality. It's not right to act upon such desires, but also the desires themselves ought to be confessed and repented of. These are, these are both true. If you consider Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't just stop at saying, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. He actually presses in and he says, uh, so therefore your heart and your mind have to be right towards other people or else you could commit adultery, right? He's, he's getting down to the desire level of sin. And we could say that that could apply to teaching of any kind of sexual sin. It's not just the activity, behavior that is prohibited. It's also the desire which is prohibited. Now that means, as Christians, this is, this is nothing new for us. We confess our sin. We confess our sin often. And we recognize that we have plenty of sin to confess. It's not new teaching for the church. 
and we shouldn't soft pedal it here uh, because in doing so, we tell people things like, this sin is not a sin God is interested in forgiving. And by doing so, we rob them of the forgiveness which they can have in Christ by confessing that sin to him. We rob them of that if we don't teach appropriately. So then, if we consider this edification that God's law promotes, uh, we might also consider uh, that the prohibition that God's law has is for our protection. So it's not just that God's law edifies his people in this way, it also protects his people. Now, this is something that in the secular world, people have done much research on, and people in the secular world who are looking at human flourishing, human, human good, uh, particularly as it relates to mental health, will say things like, if you're, if you're a young man or a young woman, uh, you should, no matter what, not watch pornography. Because it is always worse for you in the long run for your sexual relationships, for your own desire and drive, for your body. Uh, to watch and engage in those kinds of things is not some net neutral. It is actually a net negative for you. That's people who aren't Christians, who have no Christian worldview, will say that just based on the research data that supports these activities or actually goes against these activities. And Christians know this because God's law is good, it's lovely, it protects us. We already knew that God's law was edifying to us. Now we just have common secular data that supports what God already tells us, which is that sexual immorality is foolish and bad for us. And to, in, and to engage in what God promotes and protects is, is protective. It, it edifies us and it, it shields us off from all kinds of distortions within the world. But this is not just true with activities themselves. Uh, this is also true with, with our mind, what we consume in media at large. One of the, one of the books that speaks very well about this is a book called Wonderfully Made. And the author of the book says this. He says that positive sexual desire depends in large measure on our rightly ordered imaginations. So if you as a, as a person want to have a positive sexual appetite, a positive beneficial sexual desire, that needs to be a, a, you need to have a rightly ordered imagination to engage in those kinds of things. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's going to go on to argue that rather than activating sexual desire, pornography and indulgence in it does not actually awaken sexual desire, it switches it off. It actually turns off appropriate sexual desire and it, it makes it dormant. So, and this is just from common research data, you could argue these kinds of things. So God's law protects his people, not just by telling us what activities we ought not to partake in, but also what kinds of things we put in our minds that we ought not to dwell upon. Uh, it's, it's not just the activity of watching something, it's also the fact that that's now in your head and in your memory and it, it can kick around and, and create certain expectations and unhealthy ones at that. So God's law protects his people from that. He's telling you ahead of time, it's not good to do those things, so don't do it. And in not doing it, you will find flourishing and health and goodness for yourself. That's not health, wealth, and prosperity. That's God's common grace to his people. Similarly, uh, if, if you want like a more uh, illustrative example of this, I, I think the reason this works is because it protects us from having to see if it works ourselves before we do or don't do something. When I was uh, in college, we would often have to write up these lab reports uh, for, for chemical labs that we would do. And one of the things you'd always have to do at the start of a lab is you'd have to list all the chemicals you're gonna be working with for that experiment. And then you have to do research on which ones are dangerous, which ones you have to handle certain ways, what kind of protective eyewear or, or costume do you have to wear in order to not get burned or hurt by these chemicals in some kind of a long-term way. And one of the things that I noted when you would look at this data is there would always, under every chemical, no matter what, be a flavor profile. What does it taste like? So some chemicals will taste sweet uh, because sometimes in a lab you're using sugar as a chemical. But sometimes you would be working with an acid. And the description on the taste of that would say something like, 
burning or, or burning sensation. This is what the taste or flavor is of it. Now, I, what, I, what I would do and what I would advise everyone else would do is take the word for it. <laughs> don't, don't, you don't have to see that yourself. You can just say, I'm glad that someone else told me. I'm not going to go have to explore that myself now. This is what it's like for God to prohibit certain things from us. It's protective in this way because it saves us from having to go try it ourselves to see if it works. He tells us ahead of time, it doesn't work, so don't even go down that way. It's not for your good to do those kinds of things. So uh, this, this is for, it not only edifies us, it not only protects us, but in both of these things, in its edification and protection of us, uh, I think we will then turn around and have to say, we ought to see it as lovely. So because God's law edifies his people, because it protects his people with regards to sexuality, I think the Christian church and us as individual Christians ought to turn around and look at God's law and say, it is a beautiful, lovely, and good thing that God has given to us, not something which is this narrow kind of prohibition that limits us and, and quenches our life. You can consider it this way. If you uh, were asking someone, how can you have the most freedom in your body, the most amount of enjoyment and flourishing and health for the longest period of time, People who would advise you on how do you get the most out of your body, the most enjoyment out of life from a, from a physical standpoint would say things like, you need to be disciplined. You need to eat the right kind of food. You need to avoid certain kinds of chemicals and substances. You need to sleep the right amount. You need to have the right amount of food put into your body, but you also need to exercise your body well. You need to have discipline in order to have the most freedom out of your body. Now, if you have no discipline with regards to your body, as you get older, you get a lot less freedom out of your body. Your body begins to break down. It doesn't hold up as well. It, it doesn't perform as well. I think it is similar for, for us in the church to observe God's law. It's, it's not a law in the sense that it, it gives us things that we ought to obey with no explanation as to why that's good. It gives us things which we ought to follow for our flourishing, for our good. That if we follow God's law appropriately, it actually leads to our best life that we can live on this side of eternity. Now, that does not mean that if you adopt God's sexual ethic, that it will come without any kind of trouble or without any kind of opposition. That is obviously not the case. However, it is the best way to live on this side of eternity. And I can say that because God, who created this world, knows best how to live within this world. And he does not prohibit things from his people that are good for them and, then, and does so arbitrarily. He prohibits things for, from his people that would be harmful to them. That's, that's the reason God prohibits certain activities or promotes certain activities. So in, in this enumeration by Paul here, uh, I think one of the things that's really important for us to understand, like the, the commandments which tell us how to love God well, these commandments that, that we just looked at here in verse 10 tell us how to love neighbor well, and in doing so, give us narrow and specific ways in which we can love our neighbor well. So it's not as though God tells us to go love our neighbor and then doesn't give us any kind of clarity on what that means. He actually tells us to go love our neighbor and then gives us definitions about how do you do that well. So you don't have to go find out whether if you cheat on your spouse, if that's going to be good for you or bad for you. He actually says any kind of sexual immorality outside of the bounds of marriage is bad. It will, it will not work out well. It will lead to broken relationships. We know this, right? It will lead to broken relationships, broken marriage, broken, all kinds of brokenness in the world. Sometimes it will lead to children having only one parent in the house. Sometimes it will lead to children having no parents around because both parents are so mad that they essentially break the relationship off, and now the child has no one to really watch out for them. It can lead to broken human interactions, right? I've known people uh, in, in college who uh, they, would, they, would, they would go and sleep with someone who they weren't supposed to, and it was uh, their friend's uh, girlfriend, 
And this would lead to not only the breaking of this relationship, but it would lead to the breaking of the friendship. It would lead to the breaking of the whole friend group, right? The human relationships were broken all the way around top to bottom because of sexual activity, which was prohibited in God's law. Now, on the converse of that, if you have God's good design for sex, you actually have the perfect way in which humans can exist well together and have flourishing together. Uh, because uh, if, if men and women know how to relate to one another, how to guard themselves, they, they know how to actually be friends with one another. They actually know how to interact in a way that is not sexually driven, as this world is so sexually driven. Uh, we actually get clarity on that from God's word. So in this, what Paul is not doing is telling us rules to obey for some arbitrary reason. Paul is actually telling Timothy things that will edify the church, right? But, th- but this is what he's been arguing the whole time in these first couple of verses. He, he says in verse 5, we know that the law, or sorry, he says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if you use it lawfully. So the law is good. You have to know how to use it. And then he's going to go and basically say, this is how you use it. You, you keep it, one, you, you enforce it, and then you understand how it is good for you. You understand the spirit behind it. Now, there's one more thing to say in, in relation to all of this, which is to say that when God prohibits certain things in his law, he's not just prohibiting certain things. He's also promoting the opposite of those things. So here's what I mean by that. When God says, for example, in the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, when you see those Ten Commandments expounded in the rest of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you begin to understand God doesn't just say, well, you can't commit adultery. He's also saying things like, you should actually, as a husband, love your wife fully and completely. He's saying you should promote this kind of a marital relationship. Because when he says, I prohibit adultery, he's also saying, I am encouraging marital fidelity and faithfulness. So he's prohibiting one thing, but he's also promoting its opposite. Similarly, if you, if you look at God's law where he says, uh, you shall not murder, there will be 10 commandments that expound that commandment, do not murder. And it will go on to say things like, therefore, you should seek your neighbor's benefit. You should seek his welfare. You should seek his good. Uh, you, this is a common thing in the law of God. And so I think it is here when Paul says things like uh, sexual immorality and homosexuality are off limits, he is actually, in, in one sense, promoting marital fidelity and faithfulness as a positive solution to these things. And this is, I think, so relevant for us today and why I want to spend so much time on it in, in our discussion this evening is because in the Western church, we have usually at best a shameful approach to God's word when it comes to these things. When we look at the culture and we, and, and we think about, oh, I'm embarrassed to tell people that I believe Christianity because of X, Y, and Z, Uh, or I'm embarrassed of my Christian witness because I know that this looks bad for other people who are watching when I say things like, I think marriage is only between a man and a woman, or I think that you cannot have sex before you are married, or I think that you shouldn't just leave your spouse and go fall in love with the person who you have feelings for currently. People often look at that and they say, that's a very narrow, archaic view of sex. And the Christian church, I'm afraid, is almost embarrassed of this view of God's sexual ethic. But what I want you to understand, and what I think you ought to understand, is that God's ethic is way better than anything this world has to offer. At best, the world makes speculative arguments that have been untested and unproven. Things like, well, you could have open relationships without any kind of negative consequence. Or uh, as, the, as the world made the argument in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we should have things like no-fault divorce. Because if you divorce freely, uh, that'll, that'll be the best way to let people break out the relationship cleanly and they can kind of move on with their lives and, and do well. And as a result of this speculative theology or speculative theory on human sex relationships, we've we've left ourselves in all kinds of bad places as a society. 
Instead, God's law isn't just speculative. It's actually, let's say, time-tested and approved for thousands of years to work out well for the benefit of his people. And not just for the benefit of his people. Frankly, even if you're not a believer, this is a wiser way to live than what the world has to offer. But in so, I think the Christian church has to hold fast to this witness, not abandon it. Uh, we are often tempted, I think, in, at these junctures to shy away from or, or, or be embarrassed of what the scripture has to say with regards to what God has to say on, on these things. But the world needs the Christian witness on these things. Because it might not be today or tomorrow when you talk to an unbelieving friend and, and you share this. It might not be today or tomorrow that they're convinced of God's sexual ethic. But it might be that over the course of 15 or 20 or 30 years of their own life experience, they begin to recognize how empty and broken and shallow the sexual ethic of the world really was. When they ran after it and, and did all that they pleased them, they'll begin to realize how empty that was. And then maybe if you were faithful in your witness, there might be a seed of an alternative option that is better than what the world has to offer, is better than what anyone else told them about, and frankly, uh, they've never tried before. And that could be enough to show them just how good God is. Because if God is good, his law is good, and if his law is good, it works out well. And in these ways, God testifies about his goodness to his creation. We know this because God says things like, I cause rain to fall on the just and the unjust in equal portion. Why? So that the world can know about my goodness, that, that all of creation testifies to my goodness, both, both my, my laws about human relationships, but also how I bless people with rain and crops so that they, can, they should be able to look and turn to me and say, this has been given outside of me to me. And I think as Christians, we ought to constantly be testifying to God in whatever way we can. And I think given that our culture is so obsessed with sex, particularly as it relates to sex, because this is an area where we are, I think, most tempted to shy away from the Christian witness. Now there's much more to say on this topic and hopefully in discussion tonight, we'll get into some of that, but let me just close quickly with a word of prayer and then we will get into that. Lord, you are a good God and we thank you for your word to us. Your law is beautiful. It is lovely. It, it builds us up. It protects us. And yet, Lord, we often fail to see it as beautiful. We confess to you that often we begrudgingly uh, obey what your word has to say. But not from obedient hearts or from love, but simply because we know that we've been told to do this. Lord, I ask for your grace, for your spirit, that you would renew our hearts, renew our minds to see rightly your law, not just as arbitrary rules that have been given to us, but as things which most lead to our flourishing and to our benefit. That we as your people are given your commands as a, as a means of growing and flourishing in this life. Not as something to arbitrarily follow, uh, but as something you've given us in your good graces as a good gift for us. Would you help us to see your law as that? and particularly as it relates to your code of sex, that we would see that as beautiful and as lovely and as good and as something we should hold fast to because it represents how good you are to us. We ask and pray this all in your name. Amen.